Well, good morning. <laughs> I leaned over to my wife. We've known the tabs for a long time. Did they go back? Oh, there they are. Uh, we've known the tabs for a long time. And I leaned over to my wife. I was like, this is the first time I realized they have five girls. <laughs> so, you got it, man. You got it. Uh, before I get into this, um, I should say something to the mothers, yes? Um, we just sang a song about God being a good, good father, and that much is true. He reveals, us, he reveals to us himself as father, and we, we love that about him. <clears throat> but every once in a while, and, and when he does, it's with particular potency, he, re, he compares himself to a mother. Uh, my, favorite particular asp- my favorite particular reference is in Isaiah 49, and he says, um, can, can a mother forget the infant nursing at her breast? Of course, the answer is no. <laughs> a mother cannot forget that. And then God says, even if she forgets, I will not forget you. So that, that, is, a, that is a image that I've returned to over and over and over again in my life. When I feel forgotten, when I feel like there's nothing in this world except my own thoughts and the material that surrounds me, only what comes in through my senses, I come back and I say, wait, he cannot forget. And if it were not for mothers, we would not know it like that. So, um, so we love all of you and we're grateful that you're all here. Now, uh, we've been in the book of Acts and um, we're going to continue today. There's a long passage that I'm going to read. I'm going to read all of chapter 10. Um, technically, we're supposed to go through 1118 today, but um, there's a sort of a repeat of the story in 11 and 18. So I'm just going to deal with chapter 10 today. And uh, if you want to hear the, you know, the repeat, go read it for yourself. But today, <laughs> this is not a, bad, not a bad suggestion. All right. Um, today, we're going to start in chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me or you can read it up here. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended to as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent him to Joppa the next day. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw something like a great, and he saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth, and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. 
Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason of your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And then he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So, um, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why are you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in the house, in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent Israel preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging, hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised had come with Peter who were, they were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? 
and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I mentioned, we've been working our way through the book of Acts for a while, and what we've seen so far is that although there are various themes in this book, um, there's really one central theme holding all things together, namely that Christ left a people on this earth that they might proclaim his excellencies and be witnesses to his resurrection, because if the church doesn't do that, there is no other entity in the world who will. And so that's essentially the unfolding of that theme is what the book of Acts is about. So the text I just read, what we see is is a turning point in this story of the early church. Right here we see that the message of the resurrection is spreading beyond the original recipients of that message and now radiating out into another group of people known as the Gentiles, that is non-Jews. Now, What we have in this story is an account of two conversions. There's the conversion of Cornelius, and there's the conversion of Peter. So let's just organize it like that. Let's talk first about the the conversion of Cornelius, and second about the conversion of Peter. All right, so first, the conversion of Cornelius. Let's look at this story. Um, Let's begin with the kind of faith that Cornelius had at the beginning of the story. And we see it very clearly in verse two. He says that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously, and he prayed continually to God. And then later in verse 22, as the men are relating Cornelius' request to Peter, they add a couple of things. They add that he's upright and that Cornelius was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. So this guy is no slouch. Morally upright, full of good works. He's, he's a Roman, right? He's a centurion, so that means he was in the Roman army. He was a Roman who appears to have been romanced by this monotheistic faith, the Jewish faith. And apparently he has given his life to it. He gives alms. He prays continuously. He fears God. He's upright. The whole Jewish nation speaks well of him, which is no small thing given that most of the Jews hated the Romans, their occupiers, at this particular moment in history. But one day, Cornelius is at his prayers and an angel appears to him. Now, we're not given the exact prayer that Cornelius prayed. But I think we can reconstruct it pretty easily based on what Luke gives us in the text. So we've already said the kind of person that Cornelius was, right? Devout, upright, gives alms, prays continuously, everybody loves him, good reputation. He goes to pray, and the angel shows up and says, go get Peter. So if that's the answer, I assume that Cornelius was probably praying something like this. Oh God, I've given my life to you. I give alms. I keep your law. At every point, I strive to stay on the narrow path, turning neither to the left nor to the right. But oh Lord, my conscience condemns me. 
How many alms must I give before I can be free of this guilt of my persistent sin? It's a stain that I cannot clean no matter how many alms I give. What am I to do? And the angel says, send for Peter. He's got something to tell you. It's an astonishing thing. Okay, now, um, what we learn here about Cornelius' faith is that it was a longing faith, it was a searching faith, it was full of good works and uprightness, but still, it was an incomplete faith. Given everything, it was still incomplete. And and there's this idea that we have, that many people have anyway, that... um, that says, as long as we're good people, we'll be acceptable in God's sight. And that's because we're, we're good. We're, we have uprightness. We have something to offer him for this transaction. That, that as long as we're good, as long as our life is characterized by charity and goodwill and good deeds, that he will accept us into his eternal dwellings and seat us at his everlasting banquet. Bo- But the story here of Cornelius flatly denies that reality. He teaches us that belief in God, a life full of good works, charitable giving, good and honorable reputation is not a faith that that brings us into his kingdom. No amount of good works can silence a guilty conscience. We all know this by experience. Like, do something good and upright, and, and for, for a moment, for a minute, maybe for a day, your conscience settles down, and, and things feel right, but you know just as well as I do, I don't care what you believe, like, religiously, but you know just as well as I do, is it doesn't stop the churning. Give it a week, and the guilt comes back. No amount of good works can silence a guilty conscience. And by the way, that is a constant theme of the New Testament. This is not just something that occurs right here in Acts. This is something all over the New Testament. Um, Let's go and look at a few places. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is outlining his resume of good works that he has accumulated. He says that he was, by the way, unless you're a Jew, some of these won't be that impressive to you. But to the Jews, very impressive. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Now, Paul's assessment of this particular bit of his resume, like he says there in the end, all of that, loss. In fact, the next verse, he says rubbish. It's a... a, it's a nice translation. <laughs> How shall I say it? Excrement would, would be the, the literal translation. It's nothing. It's worse than nothing. He says all that he gained morally was actually a loss to him. You see, in Paul's mind, his upright behavior, his impeccable pedigree, his zeal for the Lord, all of this, far from being an advantage to him, was actually a liability for him coming to the true faith. 
And let's not forget Jesus teaches this truth also. Let's just go to Jesus. Um, He criticized Pharisees who, you know, like Paul, had kept the law and accumulated piles of moral accolades and called them whitewashed tombs who look look beautiful outwardly, but inwardly have dead men's bones in them. He also taught that on the day of judgment, there will be upright people who come with their resumes and say, wait a minute, we, we preached in your name, we healed in your name, we cast out demons in your name, and then, they, and then he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Workers of evil. Okay, that's, that's Jesus. All right, now, um, they, he also, if you'll recall, shocked uh, the rich young ruler who came up to him and said, Lord, what do I need for eternal life? And he says, keep all the commandments. It's a pretty tall order. To which the rich young ruler says, done it. And Jesus is like, you know what? You still lack. It's not enough. Even to have kept the law perfectly. And this is exactly where Cornelius is. He knows his good works are good and that he has performed many of them, but his conscience strikes him. And he knows that there are not enough good works in the world to silence that judgment. There's something else outside of him that is required. And listen carefully to what that is because because if you don't know it, your life depends on this. So Cornelius sends men to Joppa to find the apostle Peter. And Peter comes to Cornelius' house to find that Cornelius has went ahead and invited his whole family, every, you know, all of his friends, gathered together in his house, ready to hear Peter's answer to the conundrum. And Peter preaches the good news to them. Listen to what he says, verses 38 through 43. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one. He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Cornelius, says Peter, you lack one thing. It's Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection in power. It's there that your sins are forgiven. And Cornelius and his household, they all believe. And the Holy Spirit falls on them and fills all who are present. Then Peter baptizes them. And now the mission of Christ is extended beyond the Jews. And God has claimed the Gentiles for his own. And maybe I should say on behalf of us all, thanks be to God. (laughs) Um, I assume most of us are Gentiles in here. And maybe there are some here today hearing this, um, 
and you're in Cornelius' position. Like you're, you're a deeply good person. You know it. Everybody else would say it. You have a good reputation, filled with good works. You're upright. But inwardly, your sins cry out against you day in and day out. It doesn't matter how many things you try to stuff into it, the guilt will not be silenced. You know that there is a judge of the living and the dead, and your conscience tells you that that his judgment is against you. Well, I have good news. (laughs) The one who judges against you is the only one who can remove that unfavorable judgment. The creator of your conscience is the only one who can silence a guilty conscience. The Lord Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you have found that no amount of good works can scrub clean the stain of your defilement, then do what Cornelius did and simply believe that Christ died for your sins, even yours, and you shall be forgiven. You cannot earn it. It's a gift, and he offers it to you freely, even now. That's the conversion of Cornelius. Now, let's turn and look at the conversion of Peter. They, they wind together and feed off of one another. Um, okay, I'm just realizing I didn't set my timer. Uh, how are we doing? What time do we have to stop? 11.04? Okay. That's now. Okay, here we go. No, really, what time do we stop? 11.20, okay. All right, 12 o'clock it is. Now, (laughs) conversion of Peter, conversion of Peter. (laughs) Now, as astonishing as Cornelius's conversion was, Peter's is equally breathtaking. And and you might wonder, like, um, what do you mean that Peter is converted? Like, He's already a Christian. That, that's established at least at Acts chapter 2. Um, that's true. But he still endures a conversion of sorts, and I want to show you how. So while, while Cornelius' men are traveling from Caesarea down to Joppa to get Peter, um, Peter goes onto the rooftop to pray. And as he prays, the Lord grants him a vision and, and the vision is of something like a great sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. And as the sheet spreads out upon the earth, Peter can see in the middle that there are animals, all kinds of animals um, in the middle. And the command comes from the Lord, rise, Peter, kill and eat. To which Peter responds, surely not, Lord, by the way. That's the most emphatic no you could possibly give. I mean, surely not. Absolutely not. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then the Lord responds to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then Luke tells us that that little scenario happens three times. It doesn't tell us why. It just says it happened three times. Peter denying (laughs) three times. This poor guy, he's always in this conundrum. (laughs) Now, to our 21st century ears, that vision (laughs) 
Sounds a little strange. We're not really sure what's at stake here, so let me try to explain. Now, you have to understand that when God chose the Jews in the Old Testament as his people, their vocation was, by God, to be a a nation set apart from every other nation so that as everybody observed what it's like to serve the Lord, they would all come streaming in to Israel. Um, And one of the ways that the Jews were different from every other nation was how they ate. Their dietary laws, and you can read about those for yourself. You probably not, but you know, if you run out of everything else, Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14, you can go read about them. There's a whole host of animals that a Jew could not lawfully eat. We talk about this today as kosher diets. Um, and if they did happen to eat one of these unclean animals, um, an animal that did not divide the hoof and chew the cud, uh, they would be ritually unclean. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, but when you go and you look at the consequences in those chapters for being ritually unclean, the penalty for uncleanness was severe. An unclean person was under divine threat of retribution. An unclean person, if they approached the sanctuary, could be killed either by the priest or by God himself. And if the uncleanness spread too far and lasted too long, then there was a threat that God would expel his people from the land that he promised them. So eating the right foods to a Jew, really big deal. Which explains Peter's three refusals in the most emphatic term, terms. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. By no means. Surely not. Now, if you're paying attention, it, it sounds like um, the, the God who never changes, that's what our Bibles teach us about God, that he never changes, it seems like he's changing here. He's saying out of one side of his mouth in Leviticus 11, Avoid these animals, they're unclean. And then it sounds like he's saying out of the other side of his mouth in Acts chapter 10, ah, go ahead, it's fine. Go, eat whatever you like. But I don't think that's what's going on. God is not invalidating his own law or contradicting his own word with Peter. How do I know that? Well, if we look carefully, I think you'll see it too. So God tells Peter to... <clears throat> kill and eat what's on the sheet. And we could presume that upon that sheet there were some unclean animals, otherwise Peter wouldn't have objected. Now if you only listen to Peter's response, you might think that the only kind of animals on that sheet were unclean animals. But pay careful attention to what Peter says. Listen, listen. He says, surely not, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Okay, so it's not just unclean animals. We've got two categories of animals here. We've got common, we've got unclean. Now, what does it mean that something is unclean? Well, an unclean animal was forbidden simply because it was what it was, okay? A pig is a pig is a pig no matter what. It's always unclean no matter how much lipstick you put on it, always unclean. But a common animal, this is something different. A common animal is clean by virtue of what it is, 
but becomes ritually unclean by its contact with an unclean animal. If you're not following, I, I, I rated my, my children's um, uh, <laughs> stuffed animal, uh, what do you call it, basket. Um, and uh, okay, so pig, right? Ritually unclean. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. I shouldn't even be touching this right now. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Um, unclean animal, okay? Sheep, on the other hand, clean animal. But what happens is when these two things touch, like let's say they're both in a big sheet being let down into the earth and they're writhing around, this now, even though just by virtue of what it is, it's clean, it's now unclean. And the word for this, common. Okay, you follow now? Somebody, okay, good, okay, good. Have to get those back. <clears throat> All right. Um, so that's, so that's what's common. Now, um, I think that's the point of the animals being let down in the sheet like that. They're all together. They're all sort of writhing around together. And now we've got a whole host of unclean animals, but there's also clean animals, which are now common. And Peter's response, I won't touch any of it. Now, this arrangement, clean unclean, unclean, common, this was not ordained by God. But, but it was widespread by the time of Jesus and the apostles. Now, now the clean, unclean thing, I, I, let me clarify, that was ordained by God. But the clean, or the unclean, common thing, not ordained by God. It was for this very reason that the Jews cut off all relations with the Gentiles during the time of Jesus. Why? It's not because Gentiles were unclean in and of themselves, but Gentiles had no scruples about eating whatever they wanted to that passed through their plates. So they were ritually unclean all the time. And if they're ritually unclean, then for a Jew to <clears throat> associate or relate to a Gentile, now they become common and therefore ineligible to be in the presence of God. So the Jews figured it was better not to relate to Gentiles at all. Okay, back to Peter. He's given this vision about the animals, and just as he's puzzling through what it might mean for him, there's a knock on the door. And wouldn't you know it, three Gentiles have come looking for him. And they explained to him about Cornelius, and the next day they set out for Caesarea. And when Peter enters Cornelius' house, and sees that it's positively packed with common Gentiles, we can see that even having been the recipient of this vision, he's still uncomfortable. He says, verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So then Cornelius recounts his own angelic vision to Peter and then asks for a word from Peter. Now we've already seen what Peter said to them about Jesus and his resurrection and his crucifixion and his death, but I left out the introduction to that speech, which says this, verse 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now for Peter, this is an astonishing reversal. Three times Peter denied the Lord's command to rise and kill and eat. He would not defile himself to eat what was common, even though God never gave him that law to begin with. But God's response to him was essentially this. You do well, Peter. All right. Okay, here we go. As I was saying, um, I'm going to try to close this in two minutes. That's what I have. So, um, so, so what I'm trying to say here is this. Um, I, I think that we're in the church, we, we happen to be a lot like Peter sometimes when we think that God's law is just the foundation and that we build the superstructure of our own preferences and scruples on top of it. And we have this new season of mission that we're heading into with this new building, praise God. And we, we have to be willing, I think like Peter, to abandon those scruples, even if they make us uncomfortable, when it comes into contradiction with the mission that God has for us. There's a whole host of people that will come to a church that has a permanent building that will not come to a church that has a building like this. And we have to be willing to embrace them. We have to be willing to allow them to come in, even if we consider them to be common or unclean, like like conservatives or liberals, right? No, they, oh, they want universal health care or they want, they voted for Donald Trump. No, they, we embrace them. We, they come in and, and we, we are witnesses to the resurrection to them. Now, the whole reason why any of this matters is because even if, even if we have to get rid of our scruples and, and let the superstructure fall to the ground, that is okay because we were once the people on the other side of that repulsion. Peter came in and he said, you know how uncomfortable I am with this situation. And he preached the gospel to us anyway. And by his, by his preaching and by the work of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit, he brought all of us Gentiles into his kingdom. He brought all of us Gentiles, filled us with his Holy Spirit, and sent us out now to the unclean, to the, to the common, to the people, to the least, the last, and the, and the lost, so that they might have a seat at his everlasting table. So, Speaking of tables, we come now to the table of Christ. Um, this, every week you go and I go and we sin a thousand times and it's, it's, we're tempted to believe that we are defiled from the inside but when Jesus wanted to teach us about uncleanness and defilement, he said there is nothing from the outside that can defile you, only the things that come from the inside. And this meal is here to remind us that each and every week by his finished work, we are clean because our uncleanness was transferred to him, and his cleanness was transferred to us, and now we are acceptable in God's sight. So if you are a son or daughter of God, believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, even if just today this table is for you, and I invite you to come. Let me pray for us briefly. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift you've given us in the unfolding of your word and in the elements here at your table. Grant that we could um, be awakened to the glories of your love the powers of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. you are invited.